Okay, so Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you, Luke, for that reading. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, glad that you're with us and we can be learning from God's Word together. If you ask someone you live with or someone you're close to to describe you in one word, what would they say? What would your parent or your partner or your roommate choose as a word to describe you? That you're kind, patient, stubborn maybe? Lazy or cheap? <laughs> now, what happens if I ask you to describe yourself with one word? What would you say? Would you choose any of those words that people described you by? Anything close or maybe something completely different? This is a nice exercise to think about, to self-reflect, but in many ways, it's, it's unfair, isn't it? I mean, one word can't describe us all. And at the same time, one can be kind and impatient. Plus, people know us, and I'm sure your parents or your spouse or your partner or your housemate know you well, but do they know everything about you? Can they really describe you well? Now, what happens when we bring God into the discussion? What do you think God would say about you? It matters what God thinks about us, because God is the creator of the universe. He is the creator of everything. He knows you intimately. He knows everything about you. He knows where you come from, and he knows what you're thinking. And so what he thinks about you is important. It matters because if you want to be part of God's kingdom, you have to be in sync with God. And God's kingdom, as Joe reminded us, is this, is this wonderful place where God rules with his loved ones. It's the place where God rules without opposition, without sin, without rebellion. There, God will be uh, without, uh, there won't be any other place to be. We will see Jesus in all his glory, and he will rule over those we love in the kingdom. But those outside the kingdom, they will be condemned and judged. And so it's important, it's very important to think about more about this question of where you're going to be in the kingdom or how you're going to make it to the kingdom. 
This is the most important thing to think about because it determines your future. When I was applying to come to the UK to study, uh, we had to apply for a tier four visa, a student visa. And part of the application, or in addition to the application, we had to submit a passport copy of our passports. We had to do uh, bank statements for the last six months, a travel history for the last 10 years, a detailed description of all our relatives. We had to give a, a, a copy of the acceptance letter, the contract, the accommodation where we're going to be staying. We had to explain what, how we're going to finance our, our studies, financial, financial sponsorship letter, personal statements. And on top of all of that, as, as if that's not enough, we had to sit in an, with an interview or for an interview with a member of the British government to explain our case and why we want to come. So you can imagine I was ready to give up on this before I even started. But I really wanted to come here and do this PhD, so we went through. I submitted all the papers, went in for the interview, did the interview. We went home, started packing our bags, put our stuff in storage, said goodbye. Ten days later, we got a message from the British Embassy saying that we, are, we can come and collect our passports. So we go there, all smiles, only to find that, that we've been rejected. We could not enter the UK. We've been denied visa application. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the shock that we went through? I thought I was smart enough to come here. I thought I'm right. I thought I made, submitted all the documents. I thought I deserve to enter the UK. But that decision was for the British authorities to make. So we're here. Obviously, things changed. <laughs> but when you stand before God, and you have a chance to make your, chan to make your chance before the kingdom, what are you going to say? What are you going to point to for God to let you in into his kingdom? And remember, God is not like an immigration officer. You can't reason with him. You can't try and bargain or negotiate or offer him a settlement. God is the king, and he is righteous, and his judgment is always right. You can't prove him wrong. You can't tell him something that he doesn't know, or you can't offer him something to let you in. And neither is the kingdom of God sort of your holiday destination or a place that you go to for some time, a year or so, and then come back to eternal life. No, the kingdom of God is eternal life with the king. It stretches to infinity. There are no detours, no turning back. And anyway, you wouldn't want to turn away from that wonderful place. If the kingdom of God is the best and the most wonderful place you can ever be, why would you want to turn away from that? There's nothing more glorious and more majestic than being with the being and living in the safety of a loving God. But if you don't belong to God, if you don't belong to the kingdom, this is a calamity. It's a disaster. You'll be cast outside to face the, to face the eternal wrath of God with no prospect of going out. If you're not part of the kingdom now, you won't have a chance to go in when it's fully revealed. That's why it's crucial to think about securing your place in the kingdom of God, to consider what you're going to say for the king to let you in. What are you going to say for God to let you enter his kingdom? And it's important, and more importantly, 
what God is going to think of that? How is God going to look at your case? And, you know, you don't have to wait until the end to find out if you're going to be, have a chance of entering in or not. God has already revealed what it, what it takes to enter the kingdom and be part and be, be in his presence. Uh, it, it, it should not be a surprise to us. Yet what surprises you is that a lot of people turn away from that and don't choose that. In our parable today, we'll see that two men, two cases, people coming before God and trying to make their case before God, offering God their case on why he should let them enter in. But only one enters. The other one was cows outside and remains outside. And the surprise is which one is in and which one is out and why. That's what we're going to be seeing today. So let's turn to our parable now and see the contrast between those two cases. Read with me from verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is a story, a short story about two men that show us what it's like to be in sync with God. We see them both making their way to the temple to talk to God. Both of them were prepared to make their case before God. Both of them knew where to find God, but that's where the similarities end. Then we learn that one is a tax collector and one is a Pharisee. Now, this is, this is not a comment on their career choice. Rather, it's meant to tell us about the huge gap that existed between those, between those two characters. What we're seeing here is a completely opposite public figures. The difference is night and day, cold and hot, black and white. One was good and the other was bad. We'll look at each person to see what made this person good or what made them bad and then see what case they, make, what case they made before God. So let's look first at the Pharisee. The Pharisee was a religious man that belonged to a conservative group of Jewish, Jews. He's devout, a diligent student of God's word. He knows the difference between right and wrong. He helps people. He speaks out against injustice. He's like the moral compass of society. He offers sound advice. This is a good person. Look at how comfortable he is in the temple of God. He's doubtlessly been there many times, countless times before. He knows his way around. He's not ashamed to be seen there. He's got nothing to hide. It's easy for him to, play out, to pray out loud and in public. And notice that he's a grateful man and a praying man. A man that denies himself worldly pleasures. He fasts a lot. He's a good person. He gives money. He fasts. He, he, he is a good person, a person that you would think of as a good person. Even Jesus said that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, 
you certainly will not enter the kingdom of God. If you're familiar with the Bible stories, you might already know that the Pharisees were jealous of Jesus and they conspired to kill him. But to those who were listening to Jesus at the time, to the disciples or the people that were circling Jesus at the time when he gave this parable, the Pharisees were the good guys. They are the Mother Teresa of our world. A Pharisee is the person you wish to be associated with. He's the person that would bring you good reputation if he comes over for dinner. He's the person you would love to have as a neighbor because he's always welcoming, always smiling, never complains, always ready to help. The Pharisee is the ideal housemate. He's helpful, he washes the dishes, and not just his own. A Pharisee is the person you'd be comfortable sending your kids to play with his kids and maybe even stay there for a sleepover. This is a good person. He's honest, trustworthy. There's a lot to like about the Pharisee. He's a good person, especially, especially if you compare him to the tax collector. Now, nobody likes people who take away their money, and tax collectors are guilty of that. But tax collectors in Jesus' days were especially despised because they stole from people and gave the money to foreign invaders. At the time, Palestine was occupied by the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire wanted to expand their kingdom and fund their campaigns, so they would force villages to pay taxes. And what they would do is they would assign, or they would sort of figure, pick a number that made each village pay, and then they would recruit local people to come and collect those taxes. And so what tax collectors did is that they would force people to pay not only what the Roman authorities required, but more. And on one hand, they would pay the Roman authorities what they deserve or what they asked for. And with the other hand, they would pocket the rest of the money for themselves. So you can see by exploiting people, by exploiting people, they became filthy rich at the expense of poor and helpless people. And that's why people hated them so much. The tax collector is a vile and corrupt and greedy traitor that ruins people's lives to enrich himself. This is a bad person. One person I heard to talking about this compared tax collectors to French police working for Nazi Germany in World War II. I hope that's helpful. But when you hear tax collectors, think slave traders, drug dealers, sweatshop owners, sex traffickers. The tax collector is somebody that shamelessly takes advantage of weak people to improve his status. There's a lot of reasons to hate tax collectors. This is a bad person. And the Pharisee was right to group him in the same category as the other serial criminals and rapists and crooks. That's where he belongs. And the tax collector knew it. Look at how he conducts himself in the temple of God. He's embarrassed to show his face in the holy place. He's hiding in the corner. Doesn't want to be seen by anyone. Doesn't want his eyes to confront anyone. What if somebody looks at him or asks him what he's doing there? What is he going to say? How is he going to justify all the horrible things that he's done? He can't speak. He's choking for words. He is a bad person as guilty as they come. The Pharisee and the tax collector were diametrically opposite. The Pharisee, good. 
tax collector bad. Yet, to our surprise, Jesus' words in verse 14 considered the tax collector, not the Pharisee, justified. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. It was the tax collector that was counted right before God. He was the one given permission to enter the kingdom. You can imagine the utter shock on people's face or the disciples' face when they heard this. This turned their whole value system upside down. Everything they knew about who's right and who's wrong and what's good and what's bad was upended. And I imagine that there are probably people in this room here also as well equally surprised by this. How can this be good? How can this be true? What message does this send to the world? If the bad person can get away with it, not only get away with it, but he can be rewarded. What about, what about the good person? Why would anybody want to do good anything, good, do any good work anymore? And from our human point of view, the bad guy was accepted, but the good guy was rejected. How does that happen? What explains this seemingly unfair, unfair turn of events? And that's why this parable is very helpful for understanding the kingdom of God and how to be part of it. Because it, tell, it tells us that we don't see the same thing God sees. We see the external, what's on the outside, people's actions and behaviors. God sees that as well, but he sees more. He sees what's inside, what's in our hearts, what's in our motives, our motives, our view of self and others. But it's not that God is just looking to see if we're sort of self-reconciled with ourselves, if we have good motives or good intentions. If we can sleep good at night, then we're okay with God. No. What God is looking for is something completely different, something beyond actions and motives, something only God can examine. He is looking for what we place our confidence in. That sounds secondary or relevant or maybe absurd to some of us, but read with me the opening line of the parable, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Do you see it? Jesus told this parable to call out those who were confident of their own righteousness. That's the heart of the matter. That's the purpose of this story. You see, there are people that are prepared to make their own case before God to let them into the kingdom based on their own righteousness, on their own goodness. They believe they're morally upright, law-abiding citizens, that they deserve to enter the kingdom of God. They're making their case to go to heaven, to be with God, based on their own goodness, by banking on their own good deeds. But what we're seeing is that it's not about good deeds or not even about bad deeds. The Pharisee, otherwise, the Pharisee would have been in and the tax collector would have been condemned. It's not about you do or what you don't do. In the kingdom of God, in God's economy, it's not your works or motives that save you, but your faith. It's what or rather who you place your confidence in. And that's what the Pharisee got so wrong. Instead of putting his trust in God to save him, he trusted his own righteousness. 
and he thought he could save himself. He had misplaced confidence, and it's this misplaced confidence in himself that led to pride and destruction. That's scary. That's a scary thought when you consider how the world keeps pushing us to have more self-confidence and self-esteem and how the world is we're bombarded by messages that tell us to not let anyone tell us what we think, let the world tell us who we are, but that we are good and just the world wants us to accept that we are good people. And if we just try hard enough, if we just work hard enough, we will be okay. As long as you're trying your hardest, you'll be in. But it's this type of confidence that made the Pharisee miss out on being part of the kingdom. He was doing things that led to, the, to, to him placing his confidence in his own righteousness. Look again at verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. How did the Pharisee become so arrogant and so self-centered and focused on himself? How did he become to have this self-righteousness? Three things that we can see from this passage that we can point to and things to be aware of. First, he focused on himself. This is obvious from his prayer. After making a cursory nod to God, he plunges into praising himself. Five times in just a short passage, he points and prays to himself, or he points to himself. I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. He's basically thanking God for himself. He thinks he's special because of what he does. But he fails to recognize that whatever he has is a gift from life. His life, his energy, his breath, everything that sustains him is a gift from God. Even being grateful and generous and selfless, those are gifts that flow from God's good character. Anything we do and every good thing that we do is because God is good and it emanates from that. When we're good, when we do something good, it's because God is eternally good. He showed us mercy when we deserve judgment. When we, when we deny ourselves worldly pleasures, like fasting, we learn that from God who infinitely was selfless. He gave us Jesus on the cross to die on our behalf. And when we give, when we're generous, we're basically imitating God who gave us every spiritual, heaven, every spiritual blessing in heaven and gives us everything that we need to live a godly life. And so when we do anything good, it's because we learned it from God, and God enabled us to do it. But the Pharisee overlooked that and did not see it that way. He thought he was being good because of himself. And as a result, he idealized himself, idolized himself, and was absorbed by his own vanity. We do the same, I think, when we forget about who God is and what God has done for us. When we're preoccupied with our talents and careers and education and anything that we have, we forget that what we have is a gift from God and meant for God's glory, not ours. Gradually, we forget about our sins and don't see it anymore, and we lose sight of God's goodness 
and we become self-confident and we have confidence in our own righteousness. The second reason that led the Pharisee to place his confidence in his own righteousness is that he compared himself to others. And not just any others. He compared himself to people worse than him. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and tax collectors. These people committed awful things, things that the tax collectors never did and probably would never do. And so he concluded that since he didn't do these things, since he didn't do these horrible things, he must be a good person, a righteous person. The problem is that this Pharisee was being selective. He focused on sins he didn't do and ignored sins that he committed. And he set his own substandards instead of looking at God's complete and full standard of godliness. And if you do that, if anyone does that, you'll always find somebody worse than you. Someone to give you a false sense of self-righteousness. You can see this in how the whole world was captivated by Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars last Sunday. You know, in the midst of all the war, the war that's happening, a, a global war is, is brewing, uh, energy crisis, uh, food insecurity. In the midst of all that, people have been absorbed by an actor hitting a comedian on live television. What explains that? I think, you know, if you just look at how all the comments that came from all over the world about this, and some comments were reasonable and others were just ridiculous, but the main thread tying all these comments together was a question about whether Chris Rock had a right to make a joke about Will's wife and her shaved head, or whether Will Smith had a right to defend his wife and, you know, and, and, and respond to how Chris Rock made that joke. But behind all this, behind this, you know, this, this debate on whether he's right or not, I think this, behind all this is this thought, I'd never do that. People can relate to what Will, Ro Will, Will Smith and Chris Rock did because they can look at that and say, I'd never do that. I'd never make a joke like Chris Rock, right, like Chris Rock did. I'm, never, I'm, not, I'm not that insensitive. Or people will say, I'll never do what Will Smith did. You know, I'm not that hot-tempered. And that's the holier-than-thou attitude that the Pharisee had. He felt he just needed to be better than the tax collector, and that would make him in sync with God. It's easy to compare ourselves to people that do things that we would never do. But when we do that, we forget our own sinfulness and end up with a false sense of self-righteousness. Third, the Pharisee felt self-righteous as a result of making his own rules and sticking to them. He says in verse 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. That sounds devout, right? But the truth is God never asked for that. God instructed his people to fast only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. It was a special day that was meant to be commemorated with special procedures. But the Pharisees started this practice of fasting two days a week, presumably on market day, so that they can go out and people can see them, so that they can look religious and pious on the outside. They did extra-biblical things, things that the Bible never asked them to do, and they did them with such zeal 
so that whoever sees them would look and would think that they are being religious and they're being righteousness, being righteous. And that is what led them to feel self-righteous. And they did the same thing with tithing, not just fasting. God commanded his people to give 10% of their harvest and other sources of income. Pharisees applied that to everything that they possessed, even to petty things like herbs, mint, and cumin. Now, tithing mint may not seem like a, like a petty things when six stems of fresh mint sell for a pound 25 at Sainsbury's, but for a pound 25 in Palestine, you can buy a whole box of mint. It grows everywhere. You don't have to tend it. It just grows in the garden, in the street. It's so abundant, so cheap. It's like you giving 10% on the grass in your garden to charity. That's how abundant this thing was, mint and cumin were. And yet the Pharisee felt that he was being righteous by giving 10% of those herbs. He's legalistic about things God never commanded, and that made him self-righteous. And again, I think we do the same thing sometimes when we pride ourselves by dear things, by things that are dear to us. For me, it's advocating for Palestinian freedom. For you, it could be going vegan, or drinking fair trade coffee, or recycling, or buying from the charity shop, always used, never new, or supporting the, last cancer, breast, the latest cancer research, or highlighting your Bible with different colors. These are all good things and useful things, and we're right to do them. But if we impose them on ourselves or on others, they become false benchmarks of righteousness. And God is not impressed by what we do. He doesn't look at our deeds as advanced tickets to the kingdom. He looks at what and where we place our confidence. The Pharisee placed his confidence in his righteousness, and he was rejected by God. The tax collector, on the other hand, placed his confidence in God's mercy, and for that reason, he was justified. Let's look again at his prayer in verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. The tax collector, still bad, still evil, but he does something that the Pharisee never did. He cries out for God's mercy. That's it. That's the only thing he does different. He does not tell God how good he is or offer excuses for all the bad things that he did. As a matter of fact, he tells God how bad he is, that he is a sinner, unworthy to be in the presence of a righteous God. And he's not being self-delusional or self-deluded. He's not bad pretending to be good or good pretending to be bad. He does not fake piety or false humility. He is suffocating from sin. He is a bad person. He knows it. But that does not cause him to make up his own morality like the Pharisee did or to ignore God's righteousness. The only thing that he can do once he realized how evil and how unrighteous he, can do, he, he was, is to, stro- is to throw himself at the mercy of the king. 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That just, that's what justified him. His trust and his confidence in God's mercy. And that's what justifies us. Acknowledging our sin and depending on God and his mercy to rescue us is the only way to enter the kingdom of God. And God is merciful. It's not like God is standing in our way, doesn't you know, want to make it difficult for us to enter. He is merciful. He knew that we can't redeem ourselves, and for that reason, he sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross in, in our behalf. He knew that our works cannot redeem us, cannot make us right, cannot make us holy. And God did not want us to stay away from him, but to reconcile us to himself. So he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our behalf. God made Christ, who is sinless, without sin, to be sin for us, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It is the mercy of God through Jesus Christ that makes us righteous. That's terrific, because it means that we don't have to worry about earning a place in the kingdom, because we, ne we could never make it anyway. We could never earn our place in the kingdom. But the kingdom doors are always open to anyone who put their trust in God's mercy as displayed on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus humbled himself on the cross and God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand side. And a similar fate awaits those who humble themselves, those that recognize their sinfulness and their helplessness and their need for a savior. Those people, God saves. He lifts them up and gives them the honor of dwelling in his presence forever. But those that, those that in, insist on exalting themselves and believe they deserve a place in the kingdom, those people he will humble. He will forbid them from entering his kingdom and they will face the bitter reality of being eternally condemned by God. This may sound unfair, and you're right, only in the sense that we all deserve God's judgment. We all fairly and justly deserve God's condemnation. But the good news is that the mercy of God is available to those who accept it and to those who believe in it. It's unfair that we can be saved, but that's the mercy and the love of God. The sacrifice of Jesus can cover the sins of all those that confess their unrighteousness. God's love covers a multitude of sins. And so to go back to that first question, that opening question, I think if you could ask God to describe you in one word, a believed sinner would be on the top of the list. And standing before God and making your case on why he should let you into his kingdom is not a hypothetical situation in the future. It's a certainty that begins in the present. The kingdom is already here. And, we will be and it will be fully revealed in the future. Where you choose your place, your confidence now, determines where you will be for eternity. It will be too late to ask for mercy when Christ returns again, again in all his glory. At that point, you will either be admitted to the kingdom or thrown out. And the good news is that you can place your trust in Jesus and be counted in. God, at that point, won't see you as a sinner. If you ask God after you believe in him and you put your trust in him, 
what word he would think of you, what word he would describe you with, instead of sinner, he would say, child, my son, my daughter. And so I want to encourage you to choose eternal life with the king. Place your confidence in Jesus. Humble yourself. Confess your sin before God. Cry out for mercy, and you will be saved because Jesus took the punishment of sin on your behalf. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do, a, say, a complicated prayer or make it difficult or complex. You can simply repeat the words of the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if, you, if you've prayed this prayer before, remember that we always need God's mercy. Not just at the moment when we transferred our trust from ourselves or from any other object to God. We're tempted after we put our own trust in Jesus to maintain our relationship with God based on works as if the forgiveness and the mercy that we received was only good to clean the slate. But now, from now on, we have to maintain our relationship with God based on earning righteousness. But in that way, we become like the Pharisee. We become self-centered. We relativize our sin and we make our own rules. All because of perception that our good deeds justify us before God. But nothing is further from the truth. We're forgiven, but we continue to sin. And it's only the mercy of God through the sacrifice of Jesus that makes us stride before the king. In the past, now, in the future, always and forever, it is the mercy of God that sustains us and keeps us and moves us to the kingdom. So keep your eyes on the cross, not on yourself. And may you always be surprised by the depth and breadth of God's mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are totally indebted to you for your mercy and for the love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for dying on the cross on our behalf. Thank you for accepting us into your kingdom. Thank you for making it possible for us to be with you in your holy, good presence forever. Thank you for Jesus that made this possible. And we pray, Lord, that we can all follow the path that leads to life and to put our confidence not in ourselves and not in our righteousness, but in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a couple of minutes for the children to come in.